Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Norman. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, Trends in Oncology and Treatment Planning, What You Need to Know. Um, and today is that this today's program is part one of a five-part series um, on many different topics. Um, and today we're really focusing on really the trends in oncology and treatment planning. Um, and um, uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, um, because of your interest in the program today and uh, all of these other organizations that are helping to spread the word about the program. Um, we have on the program today over 353 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, so from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, Hong Kong, Netherlands, New Zealand, South Australia, and United Kingdom. So it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to be on this program today, that you're spending your time getting this information, and we're delighted to have you all with us. Now, this five-part series is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Jensen Biotech, Inc., administered by Jensen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Offen. Dr. Offen is with the Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Offen will be addressing new trends in oncology, understanding your cancer diagnosis and treatment options, how genomics and genetics may inform your treatment planning, and clinical trial, trial opportunities. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Offen. Hi, everyone. Uh, so uh, thank you for the kind introduction. My name is, uh, again, Dr. Offen. I'm here at Sloan Kettering in Manhattan. Um, and first, I'd like to kind of start by broaching the first two topics, uh, understanding your cancer diagnosis and treatment options, and insofar how genomics and genetics um, may affect uh, the way we treat uh, your cancer specifically. So first and foremost, um, it's important to kind of uh, understand that being diagnosed with a cancer is a life-altering diagnosis, regardless of the stage, both for you and your family. It's understandably overwhelming when you find out that you're living with a cancer, and it's our job as your medical team uh, to help you through this process any way we can. The first step of uh, helping you through the process is really figuring out the exact type of cancer you have and the stage. Um, stage is a description of how advanced a tumor is, and it's usually based off of several tests, including um, usually some sort of a biopsy, um, imaging, which can be CAT scans, MRIs, PET scans, um, and then um, reviewing the tumor tissue uh, with our pathologies uh, colleagues. Um, it's important during this process for you and your uh, family to take notes and ask questions. Um, don't be afraid to bring a list. It's kind of what we're here for, and we uh, very much encourage engagement. Every cancer type is unique, and with each, within each cancer type, for example, lung, kidney, kidney ovary, et cetera, um, we define certain subtypes based on how it looks under the microscope, something we call histology, the genetic uh, makeup of the tumor, um, and how you know, the stage uh, looks both based off the surgical pathology and the imaging that's done. Based off all of this, we uh, try to develop a tailored treatment option for you um, and then move forward. At times, it'll seem like there are a million tests being done, and it can definitely feel overwhelming. And again, I think if you take one thing away from this part of my talk, it's please feel empowered to always ask why tests are being done. And if there's ever questions on results, please feel free to ask your team. Um, moving on to kind of how we use the information gained um, about uh, your cancer diagnosis to develop treatment. In general, it's specific to the tumor type and stage, but it can consist of surgery, radiation, or medications, which can consist of many different types of drugs. Um, for surgery and radiation, um, I'm not going to speak as much about that, but it depends on the type of tumor and how advanced the cancer may be. Um, in terms of radiation, just as a brief aside, there are times we would use that, especially in lung cancer and other solid tumors. If somebody has pain or a symptom, it can definitely help with that. Um, 
but the roles are very specific based on where your cancer is and how advanced it is. So it's a question that I would ask you to have a conversation with your oncologist about. In terms of treatment options with medications, uh, first I'd like to start with what's called targeted therapy. You may have also heard of this as molecular therapy um, or uh, genetic-based therapy. By genetic-based therapy, this is not necessarily gene therapy, but medications that are tailored towards certain mutations in a tumor. When we think about genetics, there are two major buckets. One is germline testing. Germline is when you're looking for mutations that can be inherited from your mom or your dad and passed on to children. Um, this uh, something you may think about as like BRCA testing in certain tumor types. Um, a lot of the testing that we look for in lung cancer and other solid tumor is actually the other type of genetics called somatic testing. And this is looking at the tumor itself, so DNA in the tumor that's different than the rest of you. These mutations are not things that you got from mom or dad, but something that your tumor acquired over your lifetime that helps make it grow, and things that we try to exploit if we have a medicine. In the way I'd like to explain genetic testing and how it can affect your care is if we were to find a mutation in the tumor for which we have a medication, we would give it. This is what we call matched therapy. Um, another way I like to explain it is a lock and a key. The medications we have are a certain number of keys that we've developed, and we figure out who may benefit from them by looking at the mutations. And if you have a lock or a mutation for which a key fits, then by all means, that would be a reasonable treatment option during your course. Other medications, if there's no obvious lock or key, um, then we would consider standard options such as chemotherapy. And these are medications that um, are given most of the time IVs, some can be pills, um, that directly try to kill cancer cells as a toxin. Um, these medicines at times can invoke these images from the past of being very sick and nauseous, but uh, in general, we've come a long way in how we manage these with different supportive medication regimens to try to prevent these side effects. And if you were ever on these medications and you're having bad toxicity or side effects affecting your quality, please do let your team know, and we will do our best to tailor medications to help with your quality of life while on treatment. Lastly, the other kind of bucket is immune therapy, and these are the medications you may be seeing on TV commercials like pembrolizumab, also called Keytruda. Um, there are a lot of other medications, including nivolumab, um, ipilimumab, dervalumab, and so on and so forth. But in general, these medicines work different than chemotherapy by telling your immune system to try to help fight the cancer. It doesn't it's not right for all cancer types, and within a cancer type, sometimes we have markers that can help us determine who's best response, uh, may best respond to treatment. So I think it's important that while these are very new and exciting drugs, to have a discussion with your oncologist if it makes sense for you. Lastly, I want to discuss clinical trial opportunities, and I think as an oncologist, we always consider clinical trials as a very reasonable treatment option. Um, and it's something that I, I would uh, ask you, you know, at any time during your care, if you ever wanted to consider a clinical trial or ask if there's any that's, you know, makes sense for your tumor stage and underlying other medical problems, to so please bring it up and we're always happy to discuss it. The way I'll discuss trials, just because there are so, so many out there, is by kind of the different phases. Um, and since I'm a bit pressed for time, I, I just will go through this briefly, but I'm happy to answer questions at the end. Um, Different trials include phase one trials, which tend to be early trials, what we call first time in human. So this is usually based off of robust work done in the laboratory. Um, and then based off of the findings there, we bring it into you know, the patient setting in a very controlled manner where we make sure it's safe. Um, in a phase two trial, we build off information where we figured out the safety already to try to get an idea of how well it works. And then in the phase three trial, that's when at times there could be a consideration of a placebo, where we're trying to figure out if this new medication um, is beneficial over what would be considered the standard. An important caveat of a phase three trial, which I get asked a lot, even if you get a placebo, you, we would never deprive a patient of a standard of care. So what that would mean is if you were going to get chemotherapy with you know, some experimental pill, the placebo would not be the chemotherapy. The placebo would be the experimental pill. We would never deprive a patient of a standard medication regimen, such as chemotherapy, if that were part of the trial. But I think the most important thing in this section is, if a clinical trial is being considered in your care, make sure you ask lots of questions and go over the details of it, and um, that you're comfortable proceeding with it before you uh, were to sign on. And with that, I'll turn it back over. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Offen. That was really wonderfully informative and also very helpful for everybody in terms of just setting the stage for today's program in terms of how important these, um, what, where we've come and how important the treatments and the management of side effects are. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stacey Stabler. Um, and Dr. Dr. Stabler is Clinical Director, Supportive Care Inpatient Services, Program Director, Palliative Medicine Fellowship, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Stabler is going to address an overview and definition of supportive care and palliative care, understanding its important role in cancer treatment planning, and practical tips to deal with symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stabler. Thank you so much. Um, as a palliative care specialist, I'm delighted to have this opportunity to speak about my field. Whether someone uses the term palliative care or supportive care, what they are referring to is really an approach to care, an approach that aims to relieve distress, exchange information, personalize a care plan, support the caregivers, and enhance continuity. Palliative care, supportive care is really for patients who have serious or complex illness. It can be provided by your oncology team. And in that case, we sometimes refer to it as primary palliative care, or it can be provided by specialists within an interdisciplinary consultation team. And that team typically includes a mix of doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains. Palliative care is now supported by the major oncology organizations as a crucial component of comprehensive cancer care. And in the last 10 years, several high-quality studies have shown that early palliative care for patients with advanced cancer improves quality of life, decreases anxiety and depression, and even appears to lengthen survival. Palliative care is available at any stage of cancer because it's based on need, not on prognosis. And it, it can be given alongside curative and life-prolonging treatments. I want to be sure, though, to dispel the common misconception that hospice and palliative care are one and the same, because they aren't. Hospice is actually a specific subtype of palliative care. It's a Medicare benefit that's available to terminally ill patients with an expected prognosis of six months or less. This service delivery system provides palliative care focused on symptom management and quality of life by bringing equipment and healthcare professionals to the patient and family, typically in their home, but sometimes in a hospice unit or a long-term care facility. Um, so anyways, back to the broader concept of palliative care. It's really about adding more resources, not taking things away. As a palliative care provider, I believe that my goal is to help people live as best they can in the face of serious illness. So the next sort of part of the talk, sort of understanding the important role of palliative care and cancer treatment planning. Um, Palliative care embraces a shared decision-making model where the doctor shares his or her expert knowledge on the treatment options while the patient and family share their values and goals. And obviously, patient and family are the experts on that. This exchange of information is what enables a patient and a clinical team to jointly develop a more personalized plan. Sometimes cancer treatment decisions are fairly straightforward. For example, your doctor is recommending a treatment where, the where a treatment that they know benefits the majority of patients with very few side effects or risk. But other times, treatment decisions may be more complex. This is particularly the case when there's uncertainty about the benefits and whether they outweigh toxicities and risk of a potential, from a potential treatment. So in these kinds of situations, understanding the patient's values and preferences really need to play a large role. And many times it's palliative care clinicians who can help with that. We're skilled at eliciting patient and family goals 
and facilitating discussions about relative benefits and burdens of proposed interventions. People in my field like to ask questions like, what does living well mean to you at this time? What do you hope for most? What do I need to know about you as a person to give you the best care possible? Um, so really, it's about looking at the patient as a whole person and making sure that care is tailored to their needs. Since the overarching topic for today is new trends in oncology, um, I did want to mention one approach that we're currently piloting at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and it's called the 123 Project. And it's applying a standardized assessment of what I termed earlier um, as primary palliative care to every patient seen by medical oncology. This starts at the first clinic follow-up where the oncology nurse will assess the patient's symptoms. And the symptoms range from physical symptoms like pain and nausea to emotional and spiritual symptoms. The nurse will inquire about information preference, things like, do you prefer to hear about a big picture overview or do you want a lot of details when we talk about your treatment options? Do you want information shared with you privately or do you want your family present? Um, the nurse will also explore decision-making preferences, like who helps you make decisions about your medical care, and have you designated a person to make those decisions if you were too ill to. And when the nurse identifies palliative care needs, it's the oncology nurse and physician that are the first to respond. Many times, symptoms can be well-managed by the primary team. Um, but should the needs be more complex, then the oncology team can refer the patient on to our supportive care team for specialist level support. At each subsequent oncology visit, symptoms are reassessed and other topics such as illness understanding and patient values, which are like the questions I listed previously, are explored. The nurse summarizes the key content, reviews it with the patient, and after getting patient approval, it's placed into the medical record in a newly developed values tab location. This effort to normalize palliative care is part of comprehensive cancer care across the Memorial Sloan Kettering experience has been embraced by our patient and family advisory committee and the broader institution. So we're really excited to see how these efforts enhance patient care as we move forward. In my final few minutes, I did want to offer some practical tips um, about symptom management. Obviously, effective management of a person's symptoms will improve his or her quality of life. But it's also worth pointing out that good symptom management improves a person's function and improves their ability to pursue their goals. Those goals might be continuing to work while they're on treatment or continuing to move forward with cancer treatments that come with some side effects and toxicities. So it's really important that you tell your cancer care team about your symptoms because they can recommend treatment options or refer you to a palliative care specialist. Today's short presentation doesn't allow me to go into detail about the many kinds of symptoms a cancer patient may experience, from physical to psychological. But I do want to say a couple of words about pain management and opioids. In the current climate of the opioid epidemic, I do worry that cancer pain is sometimes undertreated. Pain occurs in most individuals with advanced cancer, and opioids still are the mainstay therapy for moderate to severe cancer pain. Opioids are effective and safe when they're taken as prescribed, but they do require adjustment and titration. Typically, this medication will be started at a low dose with something like maybe five milligrams of oxycodone or 7.5 milligrams of morphine, and just used as needed every four to six hours. If you don't respond to the initial dosing of the medications, 
please don't give up. It just means that the dose needs to be adjusted with guidance from your care team. And the general approach is that when we see that to improve someone's pain, they need to take this medication a couple of times a day because it wears off and that's what we would expect, then your team's going to add a more long-acting opioid. This may be referred to as extended release or sustained release or might be a fentanyl patch. And this will be much more effective in managing your pain. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, keep in mind that these pain medications may need to be adjusted many times over the course of cancer treatment, sometimes up and sometimes back down when your tumor and cancer is responding well to treatment. So important that you do keep your oncology team and or your supportive care team updated on what you're experiencing. Most oncologists are comfortable with prescribing low-dose opioids, but if your pain is poorly controlled or you have side effects like sedation, nausea, itchiness that don't improve after a couple of days, that's when a referral to palliative or supportive care may be helpful. So just to review the key takeaways from this very short talk um, are that palliative care should be available and relevant at any stage of cancer because it's based on need, not prognosis. Ensuring that your oncology team incorporates patient values and cancer treatment decisions is fundamental to the best possible care. And opioids remain an important tool for managing cancer pain. I really appreciate the opportunity that Cancer Care has provided me to highlight some of these benefits of palliative and supportive care, and I welcome your questions during the panel session. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stabler. That was really outstanding and really just a wonderful description of how important um, supportive care and palliative care are. So thank you, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing shared decision-making across cultures, the role of self-advocacy in your oncology care, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be involved in this call about a topic that is timely and informative. Shared decision-making, self-advocacy, and culture are topics which always have a significant impact at any stage of a person's cancer experience. In fact, the shared decision-making model has been highlighted at the national level by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the Institute of Medicine, and even the Affordable Care Act. This interest directly results from the growing complexity of cancer-related decision-making, the increasing number of medical management options available to patients, and a growing recognition the, that the paternalistic model of care did not always result in the best outcomes for most patients. Few initiatives, however, have noted the significant impact cultural background may have in the shared decision-making process or how critical critically important self-advocacy is in helping the patient express their preferences, values, and desires for treatment and follow-up care. So again, three trends have created a need to better understand these concepts within the cancer experience. One would be the increasingly complex medical system. Two would be the movement of cancer care now to a chronic care model, much like diabetes or heart disease, anything like that. And three, the emphasis on a cancer patient's self-determination, and maintaining a sense of autonomy. Survivors and patients must navigate challenges associated with each phase of the cancer experience. They also have to uh, navigate the challenges associated with a fragmented healthcare system. For example, communicating with multiple healthcare providers, the impact that it has on their employment, the financial and the insurance concerns, and then, of course, the impact it has on the family and the individual's own quality of life. Survivors now have access to a variety and depth of information and support, but that also provides an additional barrier trying to figure out how to use these resources in ways that promote useful information and understanding between survivors and their healthcare providers. 
In the next few moments, I'll expand a bit on the comments and discussion of Dr. Oaf and Dr. Stabler, and I'm sure Ms. Soleimani will provide some tips and resources on how to further explore some of these topics. So I'll briefly address the following points. Shared decision-making across cultures, the role of self-advocacy in your oncology care, and then key questions to ask your healthcare team. So let's begin again the discussion about talking a bit more about shared decision-making. Now more than ever, patients are taking an active role in their cancer care. Yet recent research indicates that clinicians, and that includes nurses, physicians, and the entire other team, may often underestimate the level of interest and desire for patients to be involved in their care. To be, un to be sure we understand the concept of shared decision-making in today's call, I'd like to provide a brief definition. Shared decision-making is defined as ensuring that patients are informed about and included in their healthcare decisions, which are made together with their, clinical, with their clinicians and their healthcare team. The importance of the patient's role in decision-making has been recognized in the context of all the stages of, cancer survival, of the cancer experience. Cancer grows more complex while the need for survivors to advocate for themselves grows more burdensome. Self-advocacy training has been presented as a mechanism by which survivors can tackle this essential but overwhelming demand for increased proactive activity. One of the advantages of having a patient become more involved in that shared decision-making is that they become better prepared to advocate for themselves. So what does self-advocacy mean? In a way, it means that patients are arming themselves with the tools and skills necessary to feel comfortable about communicating clearly about their cancer care need. It ultimately means that the individual is taking responsibility and assuming some control of their life circumstances during the journey, during the cancer journey. So communication between the healthcare team, the patient, and the family and their entire social support system is key to achieving shared decision-making and self-advocacy. As was mentioned earlier, these concepts are affected by the preferences, values, and goals of the patients, all of which are deeply affected by a person's cultural background. In the context of today's discussion, Cultural background is not focused only on ethnicity or racial heritage. I'm using the term culture to go past these groups and include religious or spirituality preferences, geographic place of residence, is it a rural area that you live in or an urban area, uh, is it the USA, is it Europe, is it Latin America or India. Um, I'm also referring to culture which includes age group, children, teens, young adults, and seniors. Each one of those groups has their own culture, so to say, or their own worldview, and that affects all their preferences and values and decision-making. So two important features of culture is, one, it really includes the sum or the total of attitudes, custom, and beliefs that distinguishes one group of people from another. And two, culture is transmitted through language, um, traditions, rituals, um, art, and it usually goes from one generation to the next. So it would be helpful for us to recognize that shared decision-making needs to be tailored to the desires, needs, and ability of individual patients to be most effective, and that includes looking at their cultural worldview. We must also recognize that there are several cha challenges influence, influencing the shared decision-making process, especially when we consider that our healthcare system in the United States is based on the framework of Western medical ethics. And two core principles of this model is truth-telling and patient autonomy. Yet, in contrast, in many parts of the world, and that means then here in the United States, medical models are based, or their, and decision-making, is based on family decision-making and protection of the ill family member. These differences can lead to conflict between patients, families, and clinicians, and therefore the need for both providers and patients to develop knowledge and skills at implementing cross-culture communication is necessary. Increasing diversity across the world is a reality, as witnessed by just watching the news and the commercials and looking at signs all along the way on different languages. So that means that a large proportion of people who do not live in their own native country or culture are living here in the United States 
yet they're still following their own religion, and which again is often going, or I'm sorry, their own values or cultural heritage values, which often again conflicts with their Western medical model that we have here. Now, what's interesting though is all the healthcare team providers and the patient have their own worldviews, um, and it's not always going to be in concordance with each other. Each group, the medical world as well as the patient, have their own languages their own meaning of, of illness and wellness, their own spiritual and religious beliefs, their own views towards supportive care, and their own ways of understanding the cancer experience. That worldview of an individual can also impact a patient's understanding of self-advocacy. So even though we encourage cancer patients to assume an active role in their health care, it may not be natural or even an easy task for some individuals. Factors affecting this skill include personal characteristics, learned skills, and then again, while incorporating personal values and priorities in a way that supports the survivor's goals and cultural beliefs. A full understanding of self-advocacy will help a cancer patient attain a strong self-concept, sense of control, and adaption to a life with cancer, again, within their own worldview and level of comfort. Self-advocacy has been also defined as assertiveness and willingness to represent one's own well, illness, excuse me, one's own interest when managing a life-threatening disease. So even though it's an important skill, there's no clear or consistent, consistent understanding of what the concept is or how to, um, to even support it. I'd like to quote a, a founding member of uh, the National Cancer Coalition for Cancer Survivors and a respected oncologist, Dr. Patricia Gans. She wrote, or writes, knowing as much as possible about your disease, its treatment, and its potential effects on your body can empower you to take charge of your health and help you make the most of your cancer experience. So it's important then for survivors not to, or cancer patients not, and survivors not to feel bad about asking questions or not to feel um, guilty about wanting to take an active role. Those are the things that we want you to do within your comfort level. So now let's move on and talk a little bit about key questions to ask your healthcare team. So you can ask your healthcare team to summarize your healthcare problem or your problem that they're talking about at that visit and let you know what other options to consider. Ask exactly what is the decision that needs to be made to increase your quality of life. Also ask about the risks and benefits associated with each option. Ask your healthcare team who else can be involved in making his in making their decisions, uh, the treatment decisions. Can it be a family member? Can it be caregivers? And ask if they can be in attendance to the visits. It's just clear. It's, it's it gives some clarity if you ask ahead of time, and that way you'll be well prepared. You can also remind your healthcare team to avoid using technical or medical jargon. Um, sometimes it just isn't natural. Again, remember those worldviews. Uh, healthcare teams are sometimes used to talking a certain way, and so it just kind of carries over when there's conversations with patients. So all you need to do is just remind them, can you simplify this for me? And that always helps with the communication. You can also ask if there's any written or visual resources to help um, in your decisions. And these are called decision aid tools. They can be booklets, they can be videos, they can be podcasts. And you can also ask if they're in your preferred language. Another thing that I think is very helpful and I always encourage patients to do is ask to repeat the information in your own words to make sure you understand the information, the treatment options, or the outcomes on your short-term or long-term health. Do not be afraid to speak up the inf if the information you receive doesn't make sense. Your healthcare team wants to make sure that you fully understand the information that they provide so you will be able to um, understand and make a, a full, informed um, decision. I, I think I heard this earlier by our other two speakers, prepare a list of questions. Um, you may even be able to take notes or record conversations. Bring a family member or a friend to help you take notes and keep track. And then ask about other services that may be offered through your physician's office, a hospital, and clinic, like uh, patient navigation services, counseling services, support groups, et cetera. And then always leave the visit making sure that you know what the next steps are in your care. I would like to inform our listeners of a website called the National Coalition 
for cancer survivors, which has some excellent resources on self-advocacy and a very interesting survival toolbox kit that addresses various topics that a cancer patient or survivor and family member may encounter. And they also have a very easy and brief checklist with other tips on questions with tips on questions to ask. Other resources are available through Cancer Care, which will be addressed by our next speaker. In closing, remember, take action by learning how to navigate the healthcare system, communicate and become an active member of your healthcare team, make informed decisions based on your cultural preferences, values, and experience. Remember, there is power and strength in self-advocacy and shared decision-making. You can become a strong, informed self-advocate in decision-making, the decision-maker in your own care. Thank you for your time, and now I'll give the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palace. That was really superb and just really covered a lot of areas that I know will generate questions from our participants, so thank you so much. Um, as always. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Paige Solmani, and uh, Ms. Solmani will be is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Solmani. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, as Dr. Messner uh, mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. And as an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay informed of changing trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. We've been talking today about the ways to manage your care, and I'd like to speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be part of your network. Cancer Care is a leading national organization dedicated to provide free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by, a cancer, by cancer. All our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical challenges, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term cancer focus Individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered in person in our New York City or New Jersey area, and over the phone and online nationally. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker in an individual counseling can offer a space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among any other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may also experience similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it is a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups, and feel free to take a look at our website, cancercare.org, to see a full list of the support groups we currently offer. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network of trusted people, can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to a short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services, including educational workshops, reading materials, as well as limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about our services, I would encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 and speak to one of our oncology social workers. There you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access 
clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be part of this program today. I will now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lomani. That was excellent and really, um, really helps people understand all the different services that, that can be accessed from cancer care. So thank you. And now we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, everyone start to prepare their questions. And Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. Oh, right. Uh, how does palliative care work for a single person with no family or close friends around or close by? Who then makes the decision and making the goals, just the doctor and the patient, and what if the patient can't make those decisions on his own? Well, thank you, Emil. That's an excellent question. Dr. Stabler, would you start with that question, please? Yes. So I think he brings up one of the really challenging cases when patients don't have as much family and social support. I think in that case, it's really important to get palliative care involved sooner rather than later to help um, strategize about how that individual can get the best possible care. You know, what the support looks like is really going to depend on the individual situation and the resources around them. Um, but that would be one of the, the things we would define as more of a, a higher needs, higher palliative needs, because um, that individual doesn't have the level of family support that many other people benefit from. Excellent. Thank you. Does anyone want to add anything to that? Dr. Paulos, do you want to add anything as well? Well, I think what the individual just described is more common than what we recognize. Um, there are many folks that are now by themselves in this kind of um, world where they have to, they don't know who they can depend on to help them make the decisions. So I agree that it's going to be a higher need. One of the things, though, even from the moment, remember, the cancer experience is long and it varies across its trajectory. So once that diagnosis is made, it's important to try to reach out. Maybe you don't have the family members, but some support group that may be there. For example, are there friends from your church group or there neighbors that may be able to help? And maybe you never thought about including them in something as as, I guess, intimate as the cancer experience, but this is a good time to reach out. I have found that many times people, when they're being asked to help in situations like this, they are willing to help. And if one person says no for every one person, there's going to be someone that will step up and say, well, I can do this or I can do that. And you may not just have one individual. You may end up having a team of individuals that are going to help you with decision-making at different stages and for different purposes. I hope that's helpful information. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Anyone else want anything? Ms. Lamani, do you want to add anything as well? I think an important point was brought up is how to reach others that you may not think of your support. So family um, definitely may be included, but for those who don't, it's important to also figure out, even if it's a friend who lives in another state um, that may be able to provide that type of support, either over the phone, if they're not able to be at appointments, may be helpful. And Dr. Austin, do you want anything as well? <laughs> so <that's laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think most of what I would say has already been discussed, but um, to echo what the last speaker just said, um, it's always more than welcome. Uh, I have people uh, very frequently have uh, even distant friends, family members, uh, acquaintances, whoever they want to be involved in their care. I'm more than happy to have them on speakerphone during visits um, just to keep them included in the conversation. Oh, that's a wonderful idea to long-distance caregivers or even people, I guess, who are local or even or farther away or all over. That's a wonderful idea. And, and to, hear th to hear you say that, that's, I think, very empowering for everybody to think of that as an option as well. Excellent. Well, thank you, and that's a good question, Emil. It's good to start off the call with. Got us all involved, and it's terrific. And our next question, Norma. Comes from Kelly M. Your line is open. Thank you. Who has a question? I'm not sure this is appropriate for now, but it's the um, treatment that 
I was wondering why it wasn't offered for a, a breast tumor. And it's called cryoablation. And how common is that and where is it done? Thank you for that question. It's an interesting question. Um, um, I, um, Dr. Offen, can you just address it in a general way? Yeah, so I, I think um, obviously um, it's a very specific question to your uh, your particular cancer uh, concern, um, but in general, um, cryoablation is uh, on the spectrum of an ablative therapy, so that's something that is like a local treatment, and it very much has to do with, you know, just like any therapy, be it radiation or surgery, um, has to do with location of the tumor, the type of tumor, um, and a lot of factors that go into safety of such a procedure. Um, and it's a very individual discussion based with both the medical oncologist and the procedural doctor, which in a cryoablation question, it sometimes is like an interventional radiologist or a surgeon. So I think it's a great question and a question that's probably better answered by the team that knows your case a bit better. Excellent point. Anyone else want to add anything to that? Or So actually, I should say that this is an excellent place to ask a question. And then, of course, um, it's a good trial to kind of try it out and see this is a good question. We're saying, absolutely, these are all good questions. And actually, your healthcare team, of course, they know you the best. So this is a very good example of then taking the information and going back to your healthcare team with it. And, um, and they may be able to be of assistance to you. Um, okay, and our next question. John John N., your line is open. You might want to check your mute button. And we'll go to the next customer. Stephanie K., your line is open. Oh, yes, thank you so much. Um, I was waiting for this seminar. It's excellent on the differences with palliative and hospice. I'm a nurse and a social worker also and a breast cancer survivor. My question is specifically on hospice. I know of many people where I live that are alone, that have been uh, that have cancer, and they want to be at home. They do not want to be in a hospice facility. And this is what's a little confusing. I was told that you have to have someone, like you're saying, either someone on the, uh, locally or someone further away, they're not in your home. Can you be alone and have hospice come to you without having any relatives around to help you? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Dr. Steffler, would you want to start with that one? <laughs> yes, yes. So another excellent question. And so the answer is, honestly, it depends. Some hospice services are willing to at least try to make that work initially. Um, sometimes patients have been able to do a little bit of self-hire if they have the financial means to have um, to hire some additional nursing help in their home. But it, it really does depend on how much need is required and how independent the patient still is. Um, as much as possible, hospice providers are going to try to help people stay in their home if that's their goal, but sometimes logistically it can be very challenging um, to make that happen. As uh, some of the other speakers were referring to in the earlier question, sometimes it is about trying to be creative about what other social supports um, might be able to come in and, and help. And while hospice does add additional really valuable support for people to manage their symptoms. It can provide some additional aids in the home. It certainly does not replace a full-time caregiver. Um, and even for patients who have you know, a spouse or other family members living with them, the caregiving needs in some cases are, are very, very high. Um, so it will be an additional conversation. The, the people to reach out to is through your oncologist. They may have a social worker or a case manager that can help you navigate the system a little bit to figure out what hospices are in your area, or calling the hospices directly if you know who's around you and asking those questions about what they can provide in someone's home, um, particularly if they don't have a live-in caregiver. But it's another one of these more more challenging situations where people have to be kind of proactive and, and creative. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that question? 
other speakers? Okay. Excellent, then. Okay. And we have a question in front of our online uh, participants, and we also do have some more telephone questions as well. But um, um, So this is a question for Dr. Austin. How far has the cancer care evolved, has cancer care evolved since 20 years ago? Which, in, in terms of the adults probably on the call, that's about when they probably have the perception of what cancer was or, or may have been exposed to what this word meant or it was even used at, at that time, actually. So if you could comment on that. So, I mean, in a broad sense, we've come a long way in even the last two, three years. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously a long way to go. Now, compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we have immune therapy, which was only, you know, not even an idea at that time. Targeted therapy and genetic testing has only recently been integrated over the last few years. Um, but I think a very important advancement as well that I think isn't talked about enough is the chemotherapies, which we have which may or may not have been around for, you know, 10 plus years, is the fact that we have, have a lot more trials and understanding about the ways to support people on the medications and dose the medications. Um, and I feel that the same medication now, like a, a good example may be small cell lung cancer, that we've been using similar medications from a chemo perspective for, you know, 35, 40 years. The way in which we give the medicines and the medications we give to support people through it people are able to tolerate the medications better for the most part and have a better quality of life on treatment. Um, so I feel that we, we've come a very long way, um, but obviously uh, we're all in this position to help uh, people like yourselves um, and to continue to advance the field. Excellent. And, and Dr. Stable, do you want to add to it as well? Because certainly supportive care has grown tremendously as well. Right. I, I do think that um, one of our main roles in supportive care is to manage symptoms. And sometimes those symptoms are directly from tumor itself. And many times it may be related to cancer treatments. And as the treatments evolve, the symptoms evolve. Um, and so, again, it's, it's going to be unique to the individual what their symptom needs are. But if your oncology nurse and physician, you know, have tried a few things and they aren't working as well as you want, this is where getting another, you know, fresh set of eyes and, and experts involved may help you be able to better tolerate um, treatment. Excellent. Thank you. And anyone else want to add anything? I would just like to add from a different perspective that it's evolved so much that now we're even having teleconferences that talk about things like cultural um, shared decision-making and self-advocacy. Those were things that were sometimes overlooked in the discussions 20 or 30 years ago because they were mostly focusing on treatments and what can we do to help stop the growth of this cancer and then along with that, what can we do to manage the symptoms, the side effects that go along with it. So as far as, you know, the other aspect is the communication and looking at things like the emotional wellness and the psychosocial issues that affect not only the patient but also the caregiver and the family. So that's also helped a lot in getting people to become more knowledgeable about the cancer experience. Well, that's so important. Thank you. And that's actually a growing area as well. Thank you. It's a, and that's a major change. Thank you. Wow. Okay. And our next question from the phone, um, Norma. Our, our next telephone question. I have no other callers in the queue at this time. But as a reminder, oh, ladies okay. and gentlemen, that's star one. So we do have another question from one of our online participants, actually. Um, and this one I'm going to give to um, uh, to Dr. Offen to start with. Um, with the onset of the coronavirus, how should someone going through cancer treatment protect oneself? Is that person more at risk? Actually, Dr. both Dr. Um, Offen and Dr. Stavler, and then others as well, but just if you would start with that, Dr. Offen. Probably a question you've been asked a lot, so... Or Dr. Stabler, would you want to take that one? Sure. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, you, you, you can go if you'd like. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, um, so um, it's a very relevant question, a question that I've been asked several times, probably by every patient in the last two weeks. Um, in terms of the coronavirus, it is um, something that we need to all, you know, think about and be cautious about and take seriously, but uh, I do think it's important that we continue to kind of go about our lives with just maybe a little bit of extra precaution. 
Um, I would say similar to a, a bad flu season, the precautions should be similar. Um, very frequent hand washing is probably the most important thing that you can do. Um, you don't have to avoid going out, but if you don't need to be in, you know, a large crowded area such as an airport or a train station, um, if there's other ways that you can do that, that probably would be advisable as we learn more. Um, but again, this is not a reason at this time you shouldn't go food shopping. It's not necessarily a time at which that you need to, you know, uh, completely become a recluse. But I think it's important that we all follow the development of the situation. And for right now, I think the most important advice is washing your hands frequently. If you're not feeling well, to call your provider and await further instructions if testing would be necessary. Um, and then, honestly, whenever you have a question, make sure you're getting answers from a good source. I think your doctors are great people to get that from. Um, and then, uh, as we learn more, we'll obviously be telling you as well. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Stabo, do you want to address that as well? I 100% agree. I think that okay. it's evolving situation and, you know, remaining in contact with your, your care providers and listening to what their recommendations are, kind of where we are right now, but continuing to move forward and living your life. Excellent. And um, Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything as well, just from the shared decision-making or how people feel comfortable asking those questions? Well, I agree with everything um, our, our other two speakers said. I would just like to remind folks to include the family in um, all these um, decisions and discussions also, so that way there's open communication across everyone, the providers, the family, and the patient. Excellent. Thank you. Um, well, um, this has actually been an extraordinary call. I actually want to thank all of our participants. Um, we really, I have to say, this has been a really winning team. I want to thank each of you. And although you can't hear us applauding, we are. Um, it was really outstanding. Um, and I also want to thank all of our um, participants who've been listening, who've asked questions on the phone and, and online as well. And um, and I, kn I know there are many more questions in queue, and um, so I, I, uh, I want to be sure that we um, address all of you as well. So if you even if you asked a question today or um, if you heard a question that was one that resonates for you, we still advise, as I think has been said by our speakers, is to go back to treating healthcare team and pose the question with them again and, and see how it, the answers apply to you specifically. That's really important. So a lot of issues have been brought up today, important ones in terms of new trends in oncology and treatment planning and actually and also the world around us. And so it's really important to have an open discussion with your physicians and your healthcare team. We also know that many of you like to go to um, credible websites um, or places to get information. And because we have both people in the U.S. and internationally, um, I often give the, uh, the, um, the Cancer Information Service um, their, um, their, um, their, uh, their toll-free number, which they have. Um, and that, um, that number for all of you is 1-800-422-6237. And they also have um, a, um, a live chat feature um, on their website, www.cancer.gov. Also information about clinical trials as well. But you can go to the website. There's a little thing that says, do you have a question? And you can click on that. And you can pose the question. And one of their information specialists will address it. So that's another great resource for all of you. Um, we also, you will be getting an evaluation after today's program, and the evaluation will include um, actually um, all the resources that were mentioned during today's program, so that um, the National Coalition of Cancer Survivorship that was mentioned, and, and all the other groups that we uh, collaborate with on this program. Um, and also, I do want to mention that the American Cancer Society does have a 24-hour um, 365-day-a-year um, call center that you can call into, and that information you'll be getting as well. And that's particularly useful for those of you because it seems that people often have questions. Um, when do we have questions? It seems that people have questions um, like in the middle of the night. So you also want to check with your healthcare team who can you call if you have a question on a weekend or in the middle of the night. That's really important to know what that call is like. Those people um, at that call center, they can't answer your specific medical question, but they are there to guide you and to be of help to you across the board throughout the year. That's really helpful. And for those of you who'd like to seek psychosocial support from Cancer Care or financial assistance or practical help, you can contact Cancer Care directly, and you'll be getting information about that as well. 
and Ms. Soleimani gave you those numbers as well on the website, but we'll again be giving that to you um, after the program as well um, with all those details. So I want to thank you all for participating today. I also want you um, to know that you're not, we, want, we don't want you to feel you're alone. Um, there are many, many organizations out there that you can go to. Um, there are many um, that are free, actually. There's a free resources for you. Um, and of course, your healthcare team. And although we know that at times many of you feel alone, um, you may be the only person in your community or who has the particular type of cancer you have or is struggling with the particular issues that you may be having. But still, you know, um, so you're going to have those feelings, but just know, tuck it away somewhere that there are places you can call for help and you can talk with someone at those moments um, in addition to your healthcare team and your family and friends just so that there's you have a sense of a, a support network. Um, and so that's important as well. So again, I want to thank you for your participation. You'll be getting information about lots of other programs that we're planning actively so you can see those. And thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.